Well, this is our fifth week tracing through the life of Joseph and his story. And if you cast your mind back to the first week and you remember the wonderful dreams that he'd been given and the coat of many colours he'd been given, that he would be entitled to think that from that point onwards, his life would be onwards and upwards. I mean, can you remember? He had the sun, the moon and the stars bowing down to him. And and this came to him with all the force of the word of God. And so you would have thought that his life would have been onwards and upwards. Uh, We've also seen how different Joseph was to his wicked brothers and that he was loved and favoured not only by God, but by his father, Jacob. And so of all the people in the world, you might have expected him to have a cruisy life, right? Given the favour that was upon him. And yet, that is not what we've seen. We've seen him coming into one disappointment after another. First, it was his brothers who betrayed him and cast him into a pit after this wonderful dream that he'd been given. And then it was Potiphar's wife when he was in Potiphar's house who falsely accused him and he ended up landed in this pit and this prison languishing from one disappointment to another. Well, again, in our story today, we see that Joseph has his hopes raised by the cupbearer only to have them once again completely dashed because the cupbearer, as the story ends, says he did not remember him but forgot him. And so I want you to see in this situation, in this dark dungeon, that Joseph was a suffering servant because he didn't get absorbed with self-pity or self-absorption. We see that in the hardest chapter of his life, he was able to serve the cupbearer and the baker, even in this terrible darkness that he was in. You see, Joseph served even when he suffered. He was a suffering servant. And so I want you to see once again how this picture, this portrait of Joseph the suffering servant points again to the Lord Jesus Christ who served even while he suffered. And so uh, I hope you'll uh, follow with me in your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 40, and see that uh, in the uh, opening of the story, Joseph is joined uh, by the cupbearer and the baker. It says, verse 1, they offended the Lord, the king of Egypt. This is Pharaoh. They offended him. Now, this is not saying that sort of Pharaoh was having a bad day and he was capricious and he didn't like the clothes that they were wearing and so he was offended. No, they had actually committed some kind of crime. They'd actually uh, were guilty of some kind of offence, being the cupbearer and the baker. Maybe um, Pharaoh got sick from the food that he had eaten. Uh, and so uh, held them responsible. Or maybe it was something worse. Maybe he suspected them of some kind of plot to take his life when he got sick from his meal or he no longer trusted them. Uh, Whatever it was, they committed some kind of offence and so he was angry with them and he put them in prison. Now, it's interesting because um, just like Joseph in the previous story, uh, Potiphar was angry and Joseph landed in prison. So now you see Pharaoh was angry and he landed the cupbearer and the baker in prison, but with one crucial difference. And that being that Joseph was innocent and had acted righteously, whereas the cupbearer and the baker were guilty and were deserving of their punishment. You see, Joseph deserves to be in the palace, but he's in prison. 
And so it's against this backdrop of terrible injustice, one after another, and shattered dreams of Joseph, that I want you to see the ministry of Joseph, who is a suffering servant, particularly as we go through it in verses 6 to 8, if you follow along with me, because you'll see a powerful picture of what it looks like to minister to other people and what the ministry of loving other people looks like through the story of Joseph. In verse 6, We're told, when Joseph came to the cupbearer and the baker in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He saw that they were troubled. It's been very striking to me as I've studied the life of Jesus over the last uh, six months uh, to see how the ministry of love and serving others begins by seeing them and seeing their trouble. So if you remember back in Genesis chapter 16, Hagar was Abraham's concubine and she'd been used and abused and abandoned and yet God meets her out in the desert and so she calls him, you are El Roy, the God who sees me. God sees her, and here Joseph sees the trouble that these men are in. It's all through the life of the Lord Jesus, the story of the the parable of the prodigal son that he tells. What happens with the father? He sees the son while he's a long way off, and his heart is filled with compassion, and he runs out to meet him. It's over and over again where you'll see Jesus. He looked at so-and-so. He saw. And so you see it again when Jesus is in the house of Simon, the Pharisee, and this sinful woman comes in, weeping at his feet and, and washing his feet with her hair. And Jesus says to Simon, do you remember what he says to Simon? He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Because he's not loving her. He doesn't see her. And so the ministry of service begins by seeing. And see, what's striking about this is that Joseph isn't consumed with self-pity and he's not self-absorbed despite all of his suffering. He isn't consumed either with what's the next thing on his to-do list. He was a busy man. He'd been put in charge of, of, of the prison. He had a long thing, list of things to do on his to-do list. And if he was running from one thing to another, he wouldn't have had time to stop and to see this trouble that they were in. And so thankfully, he was watching and he did see. And so because of that, a wonderful opportunity for ministry opened up for him because he was able to see the trouble that they were in. So I think the takeaway for us as we try to walk as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we would say to God, Father, and we say even now, would you give us eyes to see the trouble that the people around us are in, and would you please give us sensitive hearts to be able to see the situation of suffering around us, and Lord, to not be consumed by our own suffering and by self-pity. So he sees, and then in verse 7, Joseph says, why are your faces downcast? So the first thing he does is that he sees, but the next thing that he does is that he asks. He asks them, why are your faces downcast? Now, it's interesting. It's an interesting question when you think about what's happened in their lives, right? They were the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. They were at the absolute top of the pecking order in the house, and now they've been brought down low into this dungeon of despair. You would have thought that they had plenty to be concerned about and plenty to make them sad, and yet there's something different that is troubling them. 
There's something different that is causing them distress. And so what on earth in all the world could be more distressing than the situation that they find themselves in, the dungeon? I think what's troubling them is this. To know that there is a God and yet to not know what it is that he's saying to them. They have a sense that God must be speaking to them through their dreams. God is reaching out to to them. And yet they have no idea who he is and they have no idea what it is that he's saying to them. Isn't that why they have this sad look on their face? Isn't that why they're so troubled? I have this sense that there's a God. I have this sense that he might be speaking to me through these dreams, but I haven't the faintest idea who he is or what it is that he's actually saying to me. Isn't that the source of their distress? It actually reminds me of a position that we're in, Ruth and I, with uh, some of our friends uh, that we're praying for. They know that we're praying for them. They, they even ask us to pray for them. And they even tell us that they sense that God is answering our prayers for them. And yet still they're very anxious. Because they don't know ex- exactly who God is. And they don't know exactly what God is saying to them. So we can see, Ruth and I, that their lives are marked by terrible anxiety and stress. Well, so it is with the cupbearer and the baker. And so Joseph doesn't ignore people who are in that situation. He cared enough to see, and when he saw that their faces were sad, he cared enough to ask about their situation. And because he saw, and then because he asked, a wonderful door of opportunity for him to minister to them opened up in front of him. And so the third thing I want you to notice, having seen in verse 6 and having asked in verse 7, is that he offered in verse 8. Have a look. Joseph said to them, do not interpretations, after they share the dream with him, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And so we've seen that Joseph has some kind of prophetic gift where he is able to interpret dreams. And so he offered to tell these men what it was that the living God was saying to them. And, you know, I think people are most open to hearing from God when they're at their most vulnerable in their lives. Haven't you found that yourself? People are most open to hearing from God when they're at their most vulnerable in their lives. And so it is for this cupbearer and this baker. You know, one of the most exciting questions I've learned to ask for people uh, in the last couple of years is from James Duff, where he asked a simple question, would it be okay if I prayed for you? Uh, When I hear that people are in trouble, when I hear that people are in distress, uh, when I see it, that I can say, would it be okay if I prayed for you? I have never once been turned down and it has opened up wonderful opportunities like I've just shared with some of our friends to be able to pray for them and care for them in their difficulty and even to share God's word with them about their situation. We may not be able to interpret dreams like Joseph, but we also have a word from God that is actually much clearer and is much more complete in the Bible. 
And we have that word, and so we too are in a position to share with people what God's word is and how it is that he is speaking to them. And so I think what we see is that Joseph gives us a wonderful template for ministry that you can use anytime, anywhere, going out, particularly in the workplace and in your families, that he saw that they were in distress, he asked them why they were troubled, and then he offered to share God's word with them. It's a wonderful ministry template for us as a body together and with anyone who doesn't know the Lord. So Joseph, you see, was a suffering servant. He was able to serve wonderfully even though he suffered. And I want to ask at this point, how on earth was he able to do it after everything that he'd been through? Because I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, I'm self-absorbed and I feel a whole pile of self-pity. And I'm thinking that it's your job out there to take care of me. So how on earth was he able to serve even while he suffered so terribly? And this is important for us because we need the resources to be able to do the same in our own suffering. And what I want to point out to you are three things. And the first thing and the resource that he had in his suffering were the promises of God. Because God had given him very great and precious promises about being exalted and about the sun, moon and stars bowing down to him. He had the promises of God. Isn't it amazing that Joseph still offered to interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker after his dreams that had been given to him had been totally shattered? Isn't that amazing? In the deepest, darkest dungeon of his life. You see, Kent Hughes points out that if Joseph had given up on his dreams, the word of God to him, the promises of God to him, there's no way that he would have offered to a bothered offering to interpret their dreams. And so even in the dark dungeon, he clung to the promises of God that were given to him. But we as Christians have even more powerful promises with the, the full scriptures that have been given to us. And, and, and I, I wonder, are you availing yourself of that resource and the promises of God to you? They're all up on my wall for exactly this reason, for the dark dungeons that I face in my life, including my favorite verse from the Bible, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul says, being confident of this. You see, Joseph was confident of God's promise to him. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in me, It just resonates with Joseph's story, doesn't it? That he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So no matter what the sin, no matter what the suffering, no matter what the sickness, he began the good work in me and he promises to carry it on to completion. I want you to see that Joseph was able to serve in his suffering because he had the promises of God and he believed them. Joseph also had the presence of God. Do you remember what it says over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 39, in this dark time in his life? You can see it at the start and at the beginning. The Lord was with Joseph when he was in Potiphar's house. And then when he's in prison, the Lord was with Joseph in every high and every low, mountaintop and valley low. The Lord was with 
Joseph, God's presence was with him and this was his resource in the dark dungeon of his life. And so how much more for us who've had our sins washed by the blood of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit given to us, and again, God's promise in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, do we have the same confidence of God's presence with us when we're suffering? That's where he found the resource to serve even while he suffered. But he didn't just have the promises of God. He didn't just have the presence of God. He also could see the purposes of God in the prison and in the pit that God would still use him. Did you notice in chapter 39 last week that we see again and again and again, the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. The Lord called caused all that he did to prosper. God had a purpose for him in Potiphar's house, though he didn't deserve to be there because he was sold as a slave innocently. And God had a purpose for him in the prison, even though he was falsely accused and he prospered in that position. God made him flourish. We too have incredible comfort of God's purposes for us in the pit. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, where he's been put in jail And even in jail, he's able to say what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel because now, though I'm in prison and in chains, the whole palace guard has found out that I'm here because of Christ. And so God has a purpose for him in prison. And so to comfort us this morning, the Apostle Paul as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says, God comforts us in all our affliction, all our affliction, so that... There's a purpose so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see, God always has a purpose in our pain, always. And so it would be good and right for us to pray now, Father, would you help us to be able to serve even though we suffer Would you help us to find such a great resource in the promises of God and in the presence of God and in the purposes of God that we too may be able to serve and to see what distressed people are in and to ask them and to be able to have an opportunity even to share God's word with them. Joseph was a suffering servant. And now let's move on to the dreams because uh, he asks them what's going on and the, uh, for the uh, dreams. And in verses 9 to 11, the cupbearer shares his dream. He says, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine were three branches. Now, this is probably a, a pretty predictable dream for a cupbearer because the cupbearer's whole occupation was about growing grapes and, and seeing them ripen and form and turning them in, into wine. So this is a dream about his job. Uh, but the interesting thing about it is that this dream is on fast forward with the whole process of the grapes growing and being, um, being uh, squashed into the cup. Uh, so what it is, it's, it's, you know, those pictures of like a David Attenborough footage of where they've taken six weeks to take footage of something growing. You see it all the time and you get to see it in six seconds. Well, that's the dream of the cupbearer. Have a look in verse 10. As soon as it budded, its blossoms came out in the clusters, ripened into grapes. 
And so Joseph tells him what what it means. He tells him the interpretation. He says he's going to be pardoned for his sins, he's going to be promoted out of prison, and he's going to be put back into the palace. And he says this is going to happen in three days, which is a bold move for anyone to put at such a time stamp on their thing. We see that Joseph is unique in his prophetic gift because if it doesn't happen, clearly you're not a prophet. But it does happen, and he is right. He, the cupbearer is pardoned. He is promoted out of prison, and he's put back in Pharaoh's palace. So that's the first dream of the cupbearer and its interpretation. And now we move on to the next dream that the baker had, which is quite a bit more disturbing and shocking. And that might explain his reticence to come forward at the beginning. But now that he's found a favorable interpretation of the cupbearer, he's willing to step forward. And he says that his dream was of three baskets of caked uh, of, of baked goods or cakes balancing on his head, uh, and the birds of the sky came to peck away at the goods in the top basket. And so it didn't seem to have quite the same happy ending or vibe as the cupbearer's dream, does it? Which is no doubt why he was a little bit more reticent to come forward to share his dream. It's a harrowing picture. Joseph gives him the interpretation again. Verse 18. The three baskets represent three days, and in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you from a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. It's an extremely harrowing picture about his imminent death. And so I want you to picture the scene in this prison, because you've got two men. One of them is going to be pardoned, And the other one is going to be punished. One is about to see his greatest hopes fulfilled. The other is about to realize his deepest fears. One of them must be counting down the days and hoping for the best. The other is dreading the days and fearing the worst. One of them is looking forward to life. And the other one is looking and dreading his death. But I want you to see that right in between them is a man who's completely innocent, who doesn't deserve to be there. In fact, he's only there because of his righteousness and faithfulness to God. He hasn't done anything wrong, and this man speaks the word of God to these two criminals about their future. start to ring any bells about another man in the Bible who was completely innocent, who'd done nothing wrong. In fact, it was because of his faithfulness that he found himself in the company of two criminals, not in a prison, but this time on a cross. And whilst the men with Joseph had three days to live, the men on either side of Jesus had barely three hours Both of them are guilty, and one of them yells insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing 
wrong. And then can you remember what the thief said to Jesus? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Does that ring any bells for you? Does that sound like the words of the cupbearer in verse 14? The cupbearer says to Joseph, but remember me when it is well with you. Remember me when you get to the position in which you are going to soon find yourself at the right hand of the king in the palace. Joseph knows that the cupbearer is going to be pardoned for his sins. He's going to be promoted out of prison and he's going to be put into the palace. He's going to be lifted up and restored and exalted to the position of the right hand of the king of Egypt. And so Joseph is simply saying, when you get there, dear cupbearer, can you make sure that you remember me when you get to that position at the right hand of the king and so then we fast forward over a thousand years to this Jewish criminal beside Jesus on the cross who no doubt knew the story of Joseph and the cupbearer very well the story about the cupbearer who would go from the place of punishment into the presence of the king And now after committing all of his crimes, this criminal besides Jesus, he's in the place of punishment, but he notes that there's something different about this man, Jesus, next to him. And somehow he realizes that Jesus is not simply going to the king, but Jesus is the king. So he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Taking a line straight from the... Joseph, to the cupbearer, remember me when it is well with you. So I want you to notice that Joseph was innocent, but the thief on the cross was guilty. In other words, Joseph had a rock-solid, watertight case for his innocence, right? He hadn't done anything wrong. I'm only here because I've done right and I've been faithful. He has an open and shut case, which is why he says, can you tell the king about this great injustice? That's Joseph. But now the thief on the cross, he was guilty. Guilty as charged. He was a criminal. He didn't have a leg to stand on. You could say that his case had more holes than a piece of Swiss cheese. So how can he say, remember me to Jesus? Remember what? All the crimes that you've committed? On what basis is he able to make his appeal and say, remember me? Surely it's on the basis of this man next to him who has done nothing wrong. Surely the basis of his plea is on the basis of this man who doesn't deserve to be there, the righteous son, the one who is different and the one who is innocent. And so it is for us. As we sing, before the throne of God, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me at the right hand of the Father. 
Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And so I want you to notice that there's also a vast difference between the cupbearer in this story and the Lord Jesus, who was also a cupbearer. He didn't bear a cup of luxury, though. What did he bear? He bore the cup of God's wrath for our crimes committed against our heavenly judge. Because when the cupbearer finally enters into the king's presence, he totally forgot about Joseph. Some kind of saviour that is. Can you imagine how bitterly disappointed that would have been for Joseph after having his hopes raised only to have them dashed and this cupbearer to forget him when he was in the presence of the king? That's the cupbearer. But then you have this thief on the cross. And this thief on the cross is quite the opposite to Joseph because he has committed crimes to be there and he is guilty and yet he says to Jesus, don't be like that cupbearer when you enter into your kingdom or I will languish in hell under God's punishment. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what's Jesus' response? Can you remember to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me in paradise. I will remember you before my father, before the judge of all the earth. I will never forget you. Can you see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ in this story? Joseph says, remember me to the cupbearer who completely forgets. And the thief on the cross says to the cupbearer, Jesus, remember me. And he is saved. He does remember Whoever lives and pleads with me before the king. Joseph is innocent and the one who held the cup forgot. The thief was guilty and the one who drank the cup remembered. And so I find myself wondering about all the times where I've been just like the cupbearer, experiencing an extraordinary deliverance, being placed at the right hand of the Father with Christ, and yet doing so little with the privileges I've been given of having access to the king and to the judge. You see, the king of Egypt had extraordinary power to change the situation of Joseph. All it would take was for the cupbearer to remember him and to speak to this king on behalf of Joseph. But he didn't. He said nothing. Despite his incredible privilege and access that he had to the king. And so I want you to see that prayer is doing the exact opposite of what the cupbearer did. You see, prayer is recognizing the privileged access that we have to the Father, a constant audience with the King of Kings. Prayer is rejoicing in the righteous Son who, because of his death and resurrection, has given us this extraordinary access to the King of all power and all mercy and all might. And ultimately, prayer is doing exactly what he didn't do, which is remembering others to God's mercy 
The people around us who need to be rescued from the pit of their sin and the pit of their suffering and asking the mighty and merciful king that he would ask and deliver on their behalf. And so the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The Apostle Paul was only doing for the Ephesians what the Lord Jesus was already doing for him and is already doing for us. Because in Hebrews 7 it says, He always lives to make intercession for us. And so it's because of Jesus who drank the cup of God's wrath, who is now seated at the right hand of God and exalted, that we can take such comfort in our dungeons of despair, that we can take such consolation that he's with us and for us and has a purpose in our deep distress. And so as we put our trust in him, just as Joseph did, we can serve others even while we suffer because God has taken care of us. We can serve even while we suffer. And so I want to wrap up this morning showing you a photo up on the screen. My uncle Peter, it's his funeral this past week. And like Joseph, he had incredibly high hopes for his life. He was a very successful lawyer. Uh, He was in government uh, with uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs. He had a beautiful family and he was a pastor in a Baptist Church, And he was at the peak of his career with his whole life ahead of him, hopes and dreams only to have a car accident 30 years ago and to be wheelchair ridden for the rest of his life. And so like Joseph, bitterly disappointed, terrible suffering. His wife Anne spent the next 30 years taking care of him in sickness and in health and I consider it a great privilege to call him my uncle and to call her my aunt as he, like Joseph, was able to serve even while he suffered. And his favourite hymn I want to finish with uh, was a hymn that he sang on his deathbed. He couldn't say any words, but he was able to sing five hymns flawlessly with my mother and his other siblings on his deathbed. And it was the hymn that we sang opening hymn at his funeral and it is a fitting end to this story that puts an exclamation point on what it is that God is saying to us. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will not, no, will not, I will not forsake. And so we can walk in the path of the suffering servant 
because of our suffering servant, the Lord Jesus. Let's come to him quietly in prayer now. Will you open your heart to him and pour out your prayers to him in silence as you respond to his word to you this morning? And so, Heavenly Father, we thank you for our suffering servant. Father, we pray that you would help us to serve no matter our suffering because of the firm foundation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, his promises to us, his presence with us, and his purposes for us. Father, we do confess that we can get consumed and self-absorbed and weighed down by self-pity but we thank you for the astonishing resources that we have in Christ to be able to serve even while we suffer. And please fill us with your spirit and give us such confidence in these, Father, that we might be useful in your service. We thank you for Jesus, the suffering servant, the innocent one who is now at the right hand of the Father and whoever lives and pleads for us, Father. Give us great confidence in that, that we might pray for and serve others wholeheartedly and in the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing.